Before we get started with today's episode, I want to thank some people who help keep the show afloat. Our sponsors, our friends at Owens Recovery Science, a single source for PTs looking for certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. And the equipment, you need to apply it properly in your clinical practice. Find out more at owensrecoveryscience.com. And Fusion Medical Staffing, leaders in travel PT placements all around the country. Do what you want to do, where you want to do it. Be a great PT or PTA wherever you want to go. Hashtag travel PT. Find them online at fusionmedstaff.com with their full job transparency. Again, fusionmedstaff.com. All right, let's start the show. We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. Like craft beer for your ears. This is the PT Pinecast. All right, audience, we're live. Thanks so much for coming back. Before we get started, I do want to say thanks to our sponsors, your CBD store. Find them online at CBDRX for you. Uh, CBD coming up a lot in conversation online and in, in clinical practice, right? Some people that you're going to be working with or treating are taking this for sleep, for stress reduction, for wellness. They're taking it. You're not prescribing it as a PT, but it's coming up. Have, have the latest evidence. Know what you're, know what you're talking about. Be confident in that. Find that online at CBDRX for you. They've uh, they're run by physicians, so they're going to give you the ABCs of CBD, right? So find out there. They've also got 500 locations. Also, we're giving giving away some pint glasses. Thanks to our friends at CBDRX for you. Sign up for those. We'll ship them to you online at ptpintcast.com. But get the good information, the good literature online at that website, CBDRX for you.com. All right, let's start the show. All right, guys, welcome to PT Podcast, a podcast that saves physical therapists from missing out on amazing insight, remarkable ideas, and motivational stories in the world of uh, physical therapy. I'm Jimmy McCam, your host tonight. Find us on the socials at PT Podcast, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, as well as uh, subscribe to the podcast for free. I know it has the word subscribe in it, but it's free, I promise. Uh, iTunes, Google, Spotify, the whole nine. Uh, subscribe to the show so you never miss an important episode. And this, I think, is an important episode. Let's get the more serious music on. And this is a this is a show I try to be fun and goofy, mostly because I'm goofy. Uh, but this is a serious topic that I wanted to bring um, back on the show. Uh, we're going to talk about racism in medicine. And if that is a topic you are uncomfortable with, you can press pause at any time and not listen. Um, I think you should also ask, ask yourself, why are you uncomfortable talking about racism in medicine? This episode was was brought about by a tweet that was sent by a, rep, a reputable, established journal, and that's the Journal of the American Medical Association. We have the tweet on the screen. This is what was tweeted by JAMA last Thursday. No physician is racist, so how can there be structural racism in healthcare? An explanation of the idea by doctors for doctors in this user-friendly podcast uh, from the great, and then they have two uh, Twitter handles, which were representatives of JAMA, which again is the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, that tweet lived online for several days before it was pulled down. It was deleted after backlash on social media and from other members of the medical community and the public at large. Uh, AMA's House of Delegates recently uh, uh, passed a policy stating that racism is structural, systemic, cultural, 
and interpersonal, and we are deeply disturbed and angered by a recent JAMA podcast that questioned the existence of structural racism and the affiliated tweet that promoted the podcast. That was a uh, tweet from JAMA and one of their representatives. It went on further. JAMA has editorial independence from AMA, but this tweet and podcast are inconsistent with the policies and views of the AMA, and I'm concerned about and acknowledge the harms that they have caused. Structural racism in healthcare and our society exists, and is it is incumbent on all of us to fix that. So that is what happened. That's us resetting the stage. And I wanted to bring on some guests to help us talk about this and respond as physical therapists would in this space. So let me introduce our guests tonight. Uh, a physical therapist, health services researcher, and rehabilitation science PhD candidate dedicated to helping people with cancer move. That is Christopher Barnes. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Lisa Van Hoos, a wife, mother, friend, researcher, and leader of the Ujima Institute. Lisa Van Hoos, welcome back to the show. Mark Milligan, husband, dad, food lover, PT, and CEO and founder of Anywhere Health. Welcome back, Mark Milligan. Uh, Rupal Patel, physical therapist and professor. Rupal, uh, always great to have on the show. Welcome back. As well as Stephanie Long, physical therapist, regional director, and active member of APTA Geriatrics, one of my colleagues at Fox Rehabilitation, as well as being the 2021 winner of the President's Award from APTA Geriatrics. I'm going to give you guys some piped-in crowd noise. There we go, because we are not together, but we are physically, uh, physically distant but socially connected. First of all, thanks so much for taking some time out to talk about this. I saw the tweet. We all saw the tweet and uh, we probably chimed in either in our own heads or we quote tweeted it or replied or had other conversations. Um, I immediately thought of this group here, maybe some other people as well that were unable to uh, be on the podcast tonight. And I wanted less of an interview and more of a almost clubhouse. We were just talking about that clubhouse, that app, a clubhouse conversation about it to vet out this topic, to vet out what actually happened. Let's deconstruct what happened. Um, I thought it was ironic that the tweet actually was talking about structural racism while a large organizational structure was tweeting out that there was no structural racism. Their apology, which again was several days later, um, I thought uh, I thought late as a communications professional. I'll speak about that. I, I was shocked that that tweet lived on as long as it did without coming down. Um, so uh, I do want to point out that a producer of this uh, podcast, also a PT student at Sacred Heart University, Bridget Nolan, was very quick to comment and did so as a PT student with the literature. And uh, I would love to read Bridget's tweet because it was so well wit. Well, it was I only if I had one glass of wine. It was so well written, timely and concise. Bridget immediately tweeted in contrast, healthcare workers have been found to have the same level of implicit bias as the general population. And these biases are likely to impact patient diagnosis, treatment decisions, and even level of care that was quoted from Fitzgerald in 2017 from BMC Medical Ethics. So I want to give kudos to the PT student who eloquently, concisely, and directly responded so properly. So kudos to Bridget, who's a PT student. Um, so let's start uh, here. Uh, no physician is racist, so how can there be structural racism in healthcare? Let's start with Lisa. Um, we wanted to talk about understanding the words. We need to start. It sounds like we're 
starting way too basic, but I don't think that we are. Let's make sure we understand the words that we're using because words have meaning and they and they 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 carry weight. So let's talk about different types of racism and racism versus racist. Let's start there with Lisa. Awesome. Um, and welcome everyone. I'm looking forward to tonight's conversation. I think it was an interesting um, juxtaposition because this particular person talked about how that physicians are not racist, um, which would probably what that person was trying to talk about was interpersonal racism. So like racist behaviors we show to each other in an interaction. And so then because this person is saying that physicians are not racist, therefore there could not be structural racism. And those two things are very different. So first of all, the premise that um, the person had talked about was that there could not be racism and racist behaviors because those things had been made illegal in the 1960s. But I think we are all comfortable with saying that structural racism is alive and well, right? And so when you think of structural racism, it is all of the practices that are woven into our society that build these social structures, right? So the structure is around us, it's underneath us. Um, so, and we know that because it's structural, that then that's what makes it so durable. That's why we've had such a hard time getting on, on top of this. So I think it was interesting that he took an interpersonal racism and then tried to equate it to that's why there could not be the structure around us. And there was a part of me that felt like there was a little professional elitism in it, right? Because physicians are just one part of society, but they do not dictate all of society. Um, we know that there are several of our um, physician friends who who believe that they are at the top of, you know, the healthcare ecosystem. But nowadays, that's not even true, where we're trying to really function in this interprofessional space. And so there was just all of this nice elitism kind of rolled up into that one conversation. And the last thing I'll say about structural racism, which I think is really important to people, is that it is these policies, practices, structures that we've set up, and we actually have normalized them and legitimized them. So we have said that we are okay with excluding or marginalizing a certain group of people, and then we built up policies, practices, and behaviors around it to support it. So that would be my initial thoughts on it. I'm interested to see what other people think. All right, let's go around the horn here. Uh, Chris, you want to go next? When, 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 let's start. Let's start with your initial reactions, I, and we'll, we'll ask all of you that when, because I'm sure you saw it or saw it shared. Where, do, where did you start when you saw that tweet? Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, uh, welcome. Nice to see everybody here. Uh, and and uh, a hearty hello to everybody who's listening out in the world or watching. Um, my first response was uh, like a mix of disbelief and, uh, you know, kind of matter of fact, obvious. Of course, that's that's something that somebody would say in these these climate and that is not a new sentiment um it's not original thought it is not uh groundbreaking it's not uh, even the current kind of way of challenging um 
at you know at an intellectual level charge uh, challenging uh the concept of racism or um you know uh, systemic uh, uh inequities races systemic racism any of that um this is kind of like uh uh the greatest hits uh circling the conservative pundit sphere uh in the mouths of representatives and senators so you know really the least common denominator in in kind of the uh let's keep the status quo kind of space um so i was surprised at just how you know uh, pedestrian it was honestly there's just not a lot of creativity there um so that was you kind of like the oh well you know yeah of course however uh the strongest first reaction was just absolute stunned that this got through however many layers of review are necessary we all know this is not just a push a button record and then bang it's on the internet no chance for second thought no chance right. for review this was edited there were people for lighting there were sound people in the room there were people who transcribed this over into various media they rolled it out it was part of a strategy all of this took review by several layers of people ending with the editor-in-chief of the publication who came out with a very tepid statement uh the, the day after pulling the the podcast uh basically saying um you know this doesn't represent us and and you know we're good people we don't have this in our hearts um yeah the ama response was to distance themselves from it uh but the entire thing undermines my confidence in them which is you know they are the leading organization in healthcare in the united states however you know like lisa said that may not be an ongoing thing and um and whether it's appropriate now or not is up for debate but it's a fact right they, they are the top line organization in our field and to have the just the total lack of quality in any kind of review, any kind of competence, and like you said, in media, in PR, communications, it undermines any kind of sense that they have competence in other areas. And given their history, um, it makes me question whether they're actually incompetent or they're competent in actually adequately expressing the message that they want to express, which is that they don't think that there's a problem here, which definitely identifies them as part of a problem. Yeah. Like yeah. center uh, cut. Lisa chiming in saying, yeah, it's, that's the evidence of structural racism. Great point, Chris. Um, let's go to Mark next. Mark, uh, you know, thoughts when you when you saw this tweet initially? Uh, well, thank you, Jimmy. Everybody to be on this podcast with you guys in honor. Everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. Um, yeah, I was angry. I was pissed. I'm not going to lie. Like my, I responded within 30 seconds. I'll just read my tweet. I just said, hashtag fake news. Jamma, you need to fact check yourself about content prior to publishing. Racism is very much present in healthcare. This is a disgusting stance to take and needs to be removed. Um, it's, you know, bridging off what Chris had mentioned, like it's almost as if this day and age, people can just say whatever the F they want and then be like, oh, I'm sorry, my bad. And like just kind of apologize for it and, and kind of get a tap on the wrist or like, oh, bad press. It, and it's just complete and total bullshit. But the beautiful thing is what we are seeing are people's true colors and how they actually feel about things in the healthcare space. We know from fact that healthcare is built on a white supremacist organizational structure. We know that, that textbooks and content are white focused. We know that there's bias in how people are cared for in our healthcare system. How in the F, like Chris said, can this slip past everybody's filter unless there was intention right there's no slip right that's, that's what both of you are, are are pointing out and as somebody who works in communications trust me 
before something like this gets produced, there is de- there there are more than just a few people in the room that understand that. Yep. And that complicit bias, that 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 enabling is what just it angers me to the point like there's chatter between a bunch of us about how angry we were and how shocked we were, but then there's also that same thread of like shit like this is how people really think and now how do we face it how do we deal with it how do we elevate because there's no difference in healthcare than pt right like that's what we need to bring to this conversation is this has been a healthcare talk but there's we need to own it as a profession and so i think we need to think about how i'm sure there's colleagues that agreed with that podcast right <laughs> and there's there's policies in place in order to to create that Kind of oppression and systemic racism in physical therapy. How do we? How do we? How do we move past that? How do we educate and and create some type of change in our own profession? All right, let's uh, continue with initial thoughts, Rupal. Uh, when you saw that tweet, when you heard that sentiment, what uh, what did you feel? What did you think? Well, I was at the end of a long day, and when I finished vestibular practicals, and then I looked at my phone, and it had blown up with all these lovely people with their sentiments, and uh, so I was just like, "Really, is, this is not, you know, this is not from JAMA," is what my first thought was. But then, as I read the stuff, I'm like, "I, you know, disbelief." But then, when I looked at, okay, I want, I wanted to know who was it that was that did the podcast, and by that by that time they had pulled the podcast, so I couldn't view the podcast. But then I saw the two gentlemen and um, two white people, white males. And um, so after that, it didn't really surprise me because I think that, you know, one of the things that um, uh, sometimes is hard um, uh, to understand coming from that perspective of white privilege or white supremacy is that, hey, maybe this is just individual racism, that it doesn't have to do anything with structure and systems. But, you know, one of the physicians that I follow that I think in this in equity space, um, I think it's uh, Dr. Jones, Kamara Jones, and she's written a lot about this and in medical literature. And she talks about the different levels of racism from individual to kind of like a middle level to then institutional. And I think that a lot of times, um, there, there are people in the majority that don't really understand that there is a proportion of our population that really has inherited disadvantages in our society. And that's what I think Dr. Jones uh, calls it, is that inherited disadvantages, you know, not genetic differences, not behaviors, okay, even the behaviors are related to inherited disadvantages that are social, economic, uh, related to goods, services, you know, that are, you know, 400 plus years old in our society in America. And so it it didn't surprise me after I kind of saw who it was, because I think that's their privileged frame of reference. And what Chris said about how it got through, whatever layers of review they have in terms of JAMA. Yeah, that was surprising. Yeah. Uh, the fact that several of you have said, I was, I was not, I was shocked, but not surprised. Like those were several, that says a lot right there. I mean, that, you know, I've asked Lisa this question too, like before, like, this must exhaust you. And, you know, some of the responses that we've heard before is that, uh, well, sh- you know, not surprised. 
Uh, before we uh, get to Steph for, uh, Steph for initial reactions, just want to let the audience know if you're watching live, you're listening live, uh, questions or comments on any of the platforms, Twitter, uh, Facebook, or YouTube, if you want to uh, share sentiment. That's really what this episode is about and this conversation is about. So feel free as the audience as well to chime in. Steph, when you first saw that tweet, uh, how did you uh, how did you feel? What did you uh, how, how did you want to respond? Yeah, um, you know, and first off, hello, everyone. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be here. But um, yeah, when, when I first had heard about it, had seen it, much like everyone else, right? It's It's a little bit of shock. It's a little bit of surprise. And then you're like why why would i think that this could be different as as sad as it is to hear every part of our culture every part of our society it's it's echoing right like we're it's just nonstop it is every day you're hearing of some sort of injustice or cultural disadvantage it just it's nonstop and as sad as it was to hear cuz you you trust your healthcare provider right you trust your you trust your physician your pt your nurse it's almost like we are held to a higher standard and to hear your colleagues or someone on the top of the food chain as a physician or physician group saying those words where it's just heartbreaking. Right. And on the flip side, I saw this, like, you know what, here's a conversation starter. This is what is going to catapult others to stand up other healthcare professionals, PTs to stand up and take a voice and have their voices heard and hopefully impact change. Right. Because if we could all just sit back and wait for another hundred years for the same garbage to hear the same words and the same disrespect, or we can be the generation says enough is enough. This is not right. This is our chance to show the world that, you know, diversity is beautiful and we all are diverse and we all have a uniqueness, whether you are white or brown or black or Catholic or Jewish or rich or poor. It doesn't matter. We are all diverse. We are all unique. And we need to get over this and we need to find a way to make it better together. Yeah. Uh, Steph, in your intro, I mentioned that you uh, just won the uh, 2021 President's Award from APTA Geriatrics. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, just briefly explain to the audience here, you know, what what uh, what garnered that award? You're working on a great project with an APTA Geriatrics. Sure. Uh, I was uh, privileged to work with a great group. We um, DEI task force for APTA Geriatrics, where we were able to you know, dive into social media um, policies, procedures, strategic plans within APTA geriatrics, just to ensure that things are being um, diverse, equitable, inclusive, and make recommendations upon it. Uh, our group was able to make a significant amount of recommendations. And I think the best part is how open uh, APTA geriatrics were and really did want to make a change and really did want to take the right steps to make sure they were doing right um, not just by the, the patients whom we all serve, but by our people, right? By the clinicians to making sure that um, some areas maybe weren't overlooked or some areas for improvement, right? But you have to acknowledge that maybe something isn't right and then have the courage to take steps and make them right. Yeah, Toby Whitehead, chiming in from Ohio State University, contrast in between with the number of health systems or organizations, large organizations who have declared racism a public health crisis. JAMA, I mean, like, you know, JAMA. I mean, that's where we are right now. Um, so good to see that APTA Geriatrics, and I wanted to highlight, there is a system, a, an academy of the APTA who is looking at itself and saying, okay, we need a task force to do this, to look at ourselves. Right. Um, those are our, our initial thoughts. Chris, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to underscore uh, that, that definitely I agree with Steph 100%. 
um, as far as um, this is a call for uh, an immediate cause for action. Um, what that action takes, what form, that's debatable, but whether or not this is something that can slide is not debatable. Um, I would argue that we as PTs uh, take a backseat to uh, the AMA, to MDs in general, on a lot of issues with uh, some historical precedent for, you know, kind of scope and power kind of relationships. But with this issue, um, what we do at the interface of empathy, communications, and action, right? We do things with people, we talk with them, and we empathize with them very, very well. Um, we own the space already, in, in fact, and we just don't take that ownership and take our leadership in it uh, the way we need to. And it's left to people like this who are doing stuff like this, communicating in a way which is obviously um, unacceptable. Like, like the commenter said, even to the status quo with health systems, universities, and other places where people are talking about this, this is out of beyond the pale. Um, as a profession, the space is open for us to step in and take leadership in this space, and I think we should. Um, this is ridiculous, and there needs to be a strong response. I love that. Ripple, you are. You are. <laughs> yeah, I was going to piggyback on what Steph said. And of course, you know, Chris, you know, Mike, Mike drop right there what you said. Um, was, you know, I think that um, I, I'm, I'm heartened to see that there within our profession that um, there is movement, um, such as what Steph described with APTA geriatric. I serve on the uh, Texas Physical Therapy Association's DEI task force. And, you know, we have started kind of that process and um, my friend here and mentor Lisa has taught me that, you know, you need to start with kind of a climate scan. And so we've kind of done that and, you know, um, uh, members and non-members and kind of asking about uh, what, what their thoughts are on this subject. And we're about to have a, a town hall coming up on March 24th um, for, you know, uh, members of, um, the community in Texas to kind of um, discuss these issues because I think it's, uh, you know, it's a high time. You know, I think that the events of last year, especially George Floyd's murder and the COVID pandemic and seeing the disparities in health that were just now magnified as a result of uh, COVID really has brought this, you know, what I call a, it's a, it's a second civil rights movement, you know, and I know some in our profession, like Dr. Van Hoos has uh, probably has been part of the movement you know, from the beginning and never think of it as a second coming. But I think for a lot of us, you know, it's kind of this second coming, like, hey, there's injustices in our society that all of us need to own and, and that we need to do something about dismantling. And so, um, you know, I, I know in TPTA, we're um, kind of, you know, at the beginning stages and looking at that. And, you know, again, our TPTA leadership, um, you know, approved that. And the other thing is I'm a delegate from Texas to the APTA House of Delegates. And uh, uh, we have uh, several of our, uh, our delegates that and I that are working on uh, potentially some sort of a motion um, related to APTA and the House in terms of systemic racism. And, you know, um, we're just kind of at the beginning stages of that concept and talking to several other chapters about it. Um, but that's something that we definitely want to bring up in our profession because, you know, we do need to take a lead and we don't need to take a back seat, like Chris said. And so, you know, I invite others to, you know, join us, uh, not just those here at this uh, on this call, but others that are in this space, you know, um, to, you know, kind of dismantle some of this in our profession. 
Yeah, uh, it was sort of the driving force besides b- b- behind me asking you know this group um, to do this, which is, can we create a clarion call? Which is, do we plant our flag in something? If not this, what? Um, so those were initial thoughts from everybody. I want to move to this. This was a point brought up by Chris before we uh, before we started this episode. <clears throat> How do we educate people who want to do the right thing in this situation, right? Guidance on how to rebut the common purposeful racist argument against systemic racism. We've, we're all in agreement, at least on the screen, that what happened was wrong and the apology doesn't make it go away. Um, so what do we do? We need, now, we need to, now we need to use this opportunity, hopefully, as a way to educate and give people tools to force these discussions to happen and action to then take place. Um, so we'll start with Chris, cause this was sort of, this was your idea to start with there. What do we do from here? Where do we go? Right. I mean, we're all in agreement. This was no good. What now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. No. Uh, <laughs> um, so my, the big thing I like to do is to put people in a place of uh, cognitive dissonance. You know, I, I'm trained in MI like we all are um, somewhat casually, but I like, do it all the time. So it's like ingrained into my brain now. So I want to put them in a place where they have to think two opposing thoughts at once and then leave them there. I'm not a big fan of uh, digging somebody out of their hole. I like to leave them there and let them figure out their own way. So um, there's a lot of great statistics. And I say great because they're great. They're handy. They're uh, bad. <laughs> and they're, the, the, the severity of them is bad enough that it's obvious there's a problem. So one of them, uh, the top line one is that, uh, you know, black women with college degrees have higher rates of uh, infant mortality than um, white women who drop out of high school. Okay, so if you're arguing class, that cuts absolutely against every possible argument there. Come on, that's ridiculous. Like, if that's class, then why this? And then you just leave people in this place of cognitive dissonance, and they have to think up a, a reason. If that, if they do, that reason is obviously garbage because that's the factual reality does not bear it out. And that's, that's that process of going through that, you know, saying, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. The, uh, the, uh, the reality of structural racism and the white supremacy that underlies it is so monstrous and huge that people can't grab onto any part of it without feeling out of control and avoiding that feeling. Um, I want to put people in that space to have to confront the reality of this enormous thing that's occurring. And so I'm a big fan of uh, pointing out just little holes or big holes and then leaving people in that space. Um, I'm also a little notorious for not being being a little prickly when I talk with people about stuff like this. So I'm sure there's several other approaches here, but um, absolutely we cannot do the work for people in this space besides leaving a comfy place for people to rest once they start to say wait i think there's something there and i feel i don't know what i feel about this then to leave a comfortable place for them to have that feeling but as far as uh creating comfort along the way to say well no it's okay you're okay this is not this is not as bad as it looks this is this is this is worse and so treating people like adults and letting them rest in that place of discomfort is key in my opinion Lisa's doing a lot of nodding. I want to make sure she gets a chance to not just nod. When you hear Chris talking about that, um, <laughs> you work with the Institute as well. Um, 
Yes, and and Chris, Chris has been really helpful. Um, he serves on the council um, for the Ujima Institute. And I do agree with him. There has to be a perceived threat. Um, and that's part and that's part of the reason why we're having a hard time breaking down structural racism within the United States is because there is not a true perceived threat. When we talk about, you know, blackness, we talk about it from a place of deficit, right? So, or even just any, um, some people, instead of talking about it as whiteness and blackness, they talk about dominant and sub um, and subcultures. And so often when we talk about subcultures or minoritized or marginalized cultures, we talk about it as if it is, we're going to come and help them, right? So there's a saviorism to it. Um, it doesn't matter if you're talking about heterosexual versus homosexual. It's, we're going to let you have a place in society. But really what has to happen first is we as a society have to recognize that we are at a disadvantage when we don't embrace diversity. Because this homogenous professional identity PT is trying to hold, medicine is trying to hold, is not natural. Um, it is landscaped and we have to take ownership for that. It is no different than you pulling weeds out of your garden because all you want is roses. It is not natural. And I think that is the first conversation we have to have is I'm um, getting back to organically allowing people into the profession and how can we do that and removing the structures because remember structure is about history, cultural, and also institutional practices. And then this stuff that we do at a, at a personal level, it's just a manifestation of the structures that we said was okay. But the first thing is, is we just gotta make a decision that this shit is not okay anymore. And then just commit to doing something wrong. I apologize for those of you who do not embrace cursing, but it is part of my identity. And and, and to amplify, sorry to jump right back in, but to amplify on Dr. Van Hoos's point, once you realize that something is not okay, that means it's not okay. It's not, it's like having a thorn in your shoe. It's not like, well, fiddly dee, when I get a chance to stop, I'm gonna go ahead and take this thorn out of my shoe. That's not the way it works in real life. If this is a present issue that is pressing on somebody, then they need to do something about it, okay? So getting to that point of having that pivot to, no, no, I gotta get the rock out of my shoe is, um, in my, like, I think that's what we're talking about here, right? Uh, going forward, we'll bring Mark to the to the stage. Um, I had a great uh, professor in PT school who set things up for me, which is what, so what, now what? Um, <laughs> not the what, you know, we got the so what, and then now what? Ooh, this is that. That's a million dollar question, right? Um, and to take a breath in the presence of what Chris and Lisa spoke about, and Rupal and Steph is, it's really poignant, right? And I think the takeaway for me and for most people should be that this is our responsibility as humans to make sure other humans are cared for, right? We've got, like, that's what it boils down to. We need to sit across the table and see the other human there. And unfortunately, that's not done and that hasn't been done. And there's, and that has grown the structure and the structural discrepancies in our healthcare and our societal systems that have been in place for just a few to, to really benefit from. Um, 
Chris, I, I love your point about sitting in discomfort because many white people, including myself, have to sit in that space and have sat in that space and still sit in that space on how to navigate what is our healthcare system today. It's disgusting to me that someone that may look different than me has a different health outcome. It's disgusting to me that in Austin, you can literally go, you can drive a mile and have a 10 year life expectancy difference between the east side and west side of Austin, right? Like a mile, you can, and, and like those types of things are shocking. They need to be understood. But to Lisa's point, there's got to be the motivation for change. What is the motivation for change in our healthcare system? I, I think that's a question we need to talk about. Like, right, Dr. Barnes is making the sign that un, it pisses me off, but that's the root of the evil that created and continues to perpetuate the systemic oppression of people in our healthcare system is money. And so how do we take money away from the healthcare system? Because I think that <laughs> will, will maybe change some change some motivations is like, how do we, how do we take that away the profit from people not getting better? How do we, how do we change that? Because first of all, all people that are privileged need to recognize it, sit in it, be uncomfortable with it, learn about it, educate themselves about it. And if they can't do that, reach out to somebody to talk about it. Right. There are people that are willing to talk to you and help guide. Right. But also, like Chris said, there's going to be people that are going to let you sit in the mud until you figure that shit out because you've got to do that. That's the self-work that's necessary. That's the bias that you've got to look into. That's the self-inspection that you've got to do to understand what is happening. And then you have to reach out and go from there, right? But what do we, how do, what, what's the thorn? How, how can we be the thorn in healthcare or the thorn in physical therapy to make a change? Lisa, did you want to chime in or you just, I saw this. Um, I was just going to say it comes down to metrics, right? Because you measure what you value. Yeah. And so be it, you know, I know Capti's doing some work right now that makes some recommendations or either there's a task force that's going to make some recommendations related to, you know, DEI standards and elements for all of the accreditation standards. Um, I think also from a clinical standpoint, it has to become part of the annual assessment, some type of measure of um, your inclusion, right? So, and there's a research out there that talks about relational capacity and cultural responsiveness where it could be incorporated into the assessments, um, both clinically and also from a practice standpoint. I think every payer should have some DEI metrics that you are assessed on as a provider and on an institutional level. And if you underperform, then it impacts your reimbursement. I mean, you can't combat a structural thing with individual behaviors. I know we like to say that and believe that and I even quote, you know, it all changes with one person, but ultimately, we use these structural isms to support capitalism. And so we have to then figure out strategies to remove some of that power away. Um, so 
I say, you know, unfortunately, you have to penalize a few people. And I also feel like these should become ethics issues because for us as PTs and PTAs, it is written into our code of ethics and our code of content conduct. So I'm like, we need to start reporting people. There needs to be some skin in the game. Students need to know how to file a complaint against faculty. I mean, and like file a complaint that's actually going to get reviewed and not just poo-pooed by CAPTI. So I think we need to start educating people about this. And every time something big like this happens, like with the OT that was part of the insurrection, now we've got the JAMA guy. Those organizations should be responsible to having to go back and talk to the people that were treated by these providers just to find out, to make sure that no one was traumatized by that provider. Because if you believe if someone is speaking this truth in public like this, oh, they're real comfortable in that patient client interaction. This was um, a podcast and a tweet on JAMA. Yes. This was a like, I mean, I don't want to like pump up JAMA or anything, but like, is there a more major league, you know, journal in, in our country? <clears throat> like this was on JAMA. Like this is such a fail. Jimmy. Top three in the world. Top three in the world. If you go back and look at this guy that was making this statement, I mean, surgeon, has done a ton of bariatric, you know, care. So when you think about like the black community, the Latinx community and our prevalence of obesity, he has interacted with a lot of people who does not, who, who does not look like him. And can you really say that he was able to provide high quality individualized care with that level of bias? I'm like, that's an ethics issue. Yeah. Arguably people's your, your, the quality of your care changes on your impl implicit bias, right? We talked yep. about this. Yeah, Bridget, Bridget brought that tweet. Yep. I mean, it's like outcomes are different. Like you had all providers have to recognize that. I love the idea of expanding ethics past PT school too, right? Ethics yes. on the professional level and an organizational level, but ethics on just in everything. It needs to be a little bit more talked about. Yeah. Chris is, like, Chris is like, no, no, <laughs> no that, that's, that's a great idea because, uh, you know, like a DPT student has the, has the the cognitive space to deal with ethical issues. They are challenging for very experienced clinicians oh. so expecting somebody before entry level competency to be able to comprehend all the nuances is, is it's yeah. crazy. So, yeah. And the, and, <laughs> and the monthly or the what is it? The the ethics column in the APTA journal just isn't enough. Right. Like it's. Right. Just, that's just not enough conversation. We got to divert, we have to really bring that to the forefront of educate. No, from from a from a communications perspective, before we go to RuPaul on the same on the same topic, um, where we are in time, like baffles me. I mean, I work at Fox Rehabilitation. Before we send a tweet or a message, like we inspect that. Are we saying? Are we using the right words? And Fox Rehabilitation, love where I work. Um, this was this is JAMA in terms of size and reach. I mean, at Fox, we we take a look at who are we using in our photographs? What words are we using? I mean, we take painstaking care. And this was JAMA, which means they had no fear of they had no skin. There, there's no fear of a repercussion, right? At the level of JAMA. Uh, RuPaul, I want to make sure we come to you and Steph as well in terms of, hey, you know, what what next? Where where should we go? Wow, I think um, all these folks have really covered a lot of ground with that. Um, you know, I, Chris started with talking about cognitive dissonance, and I think, 
you know, um, I, I agree with that, you know, and, and it does come from my bias towards motivational interviewing as well. Because I think when you kind of get in your face with kind of what you understand and where you are in this space, and maybe you're ready for that action phase and you want everyone else to be there, but they're not uh, kind of meeting people where they are, you know, that's what motivational interviewing is all about. And so I think I, I'm I'm there in terms of, okay, is this person in pre-contemplation and it really has not even a clue of what racism and how that affects things. Um, and then, you know, creating some of that discrepancy so that then they can develop kind of their decisional balance and see if they can kind of think where they are. And so I, I, I do like that approach. Yeah. I think Mark's point about ethics and, you know, it needs to be beyond just lip service in academia. We certainly do that, you know, cases and write-ups and presentations about that. But, you know, in the clinic, there's, you know, a lot of clinics have weekly journal clubs on all kinds of uh, uh, clinical issues. Why not a weekly journal club looking at, let's lo look at racism in our clinic this past week and how has uh, racism impacted the outcome or, you know, access or whatever of XYZ patients this last week? And what are the ethical implications of that? So, I mean, it would be great. You know, my challenge as an educator to clinicians would be own that space, like have those conversations in your clinics and, and then let the students see you emulate what you're doing about it. Because I think a lot of times students see and hear from us in ivory towers and then they go in the clinic and they don't see some of that. And they see a lot of this stuff with racism kind of being swept under the rug. And students have come back and said, you know, uh, my CI just laughed it off or my CI just said, don't worry about it. Just ignore that, you know, and they felt uncomfortable and they felt like they needed to say something. And yet they don't know what to say, how to say it, um, even though we may practice that as scenarios in academics. When they get in the clinic, they don't have the power. Their CI and the patient, you know, experience is is important. So you talk about a power dynamic, Rupal, right? Like those who set the agenda are setting the agenda. If I mean, JAMA just proved that they had no problem putting this out. If the people in power are the ones setting the agenda, will they ever put anything on the agenda that makes them uncomfortable? That's rhetorical, by the way. I don't. They won't like that. You need to demand it. it. Needs to. Right. You need to demand it being on the agenda. And to go to Chris's point, what gets measured gets done. If you aren't going to penalize or or um, celebrate someone doing the uh, doing the right or wrong thing, is it ever going to change? And again, that's rhetorical. We know it's not. Right. Uh, Steph, I'm in here. Um, next, so, we look at. It. I mean, so many great thoughts and words are were just said in the past ten minutes. But like, it is amazing, and and I agree with every aspect. And, and my spin is yes, you need you need leaders, right? You need people who are quote unquote diverse, which I kind of hate that word, but you need people to stand up and be a leader and have a voice and be that first person to say, this needs to change, right? And I think so many of us are on the call, we are listening, you're reading up on it, you're taking CEUs, you're doing something to be that voice. And those are the people that need to make other people uncomfortable. But I worry about the people who don't have that voice and maybe haven't had these conversations. And I worry that if we go too strong or too hard to people who are innocent, 
who just want to know more, want to do something better, if we go too strong and too hard on them, it might turn them off. You know, whether they're white or Spanish or black, it doesn't matter if if it's new to them. They have to feel comfortable. They have to feel comfortable being uncomfortable, having the conversations, asking questions. And I think we have to be open to communication, right? It's got to be a two-way street. They have to feel comfortable coming to us, to diverse individuals and say, hey, you know, how do you feel about this? Or, or what obstacles, what barriers did you have to overcome? I, I, I don't know what it was like walking in your shoes, but if we don't let those people feel comfortable asking questions and learning more and feeling like they can connect, we'll lose them, right? So I think you have to go both ways. You have to be hard and you have to change and you have to fight. But for the people who really want to change and just maybe don't know how, we have to let them feel comfortable. Let them join this amazing cause, but it has to be in that very happy healthy, comfortable setting to get those people who are in the beginning and want to join and want to make a difference. We have to let the door open, let them in, teach them, show them, and then show them what our fight can do. And I think what you brought up about students, like, oh my gosh, that is such an important thing. It starts in higher level education. Actually, I think it should start in high school or middle school and show students of color or diverse students for whatever reason show them what it's like to be a leader show them what it's like to be a physical therapist that you can make change not just in someone's life physically and functionally but as a societal impact i make a difference so we need to target those middle school kids those high school kids who are diverse who are individuals who have no one to look up to because their doctors from jama don't believe that there's an issue Maybe we need to focus on those young kids who are so impressionable, who who don't think that they can be physical therapists because, you know, maybe they're their first person in their family to graduate high school, you know, or maybe their family can't really afford to get them to college and they don't know how to get to get there. Maybe we need to start with those kids and show them, hey, be a physical therapist. It's the best job in the world because I truly think it is. And then show them you can do much more than this. You can make an impact on society. You can make an impact on the world. Yeah. I think that's where we need to start. We have, well, I think that's, that, that's a great point because if we don't right now, you're trying to change the people who are in charge. Right. Which we, I mean, again, I mean, I, we're circling about this issue because we just watched JAMA have an egregious penalty and there's no, we can't take any yards away from JAMA, right? Like what, right. How, we, how we penalize JAMA other than an apology, like, right? They're, they're, in their mind, they're done. We need to change the future president's Correct. minds, the future JAMA editors, Correct. the future Surgeon General. Those are the kids we need to touch now. Well, and that brings up the issue of who is on these editorial boards, who are the people making decisions about what podcasts, what article gets published, who are the people making decisions about what research gets funded, um, and are there people of color, uh, people of different diversity, you know, that are uh, in those power mixes, you know, people of power, the, the two gentlemen, one was the, the chief of New York City, uh, I think, uh, public health hospital, right, and uh, Dr. Katz, and the other one was an associate editor 
of JAMA, right? And so there are people in power. So are there other others at that level? Um, and if not, then that that's where it needs to change. And, you know, I challenge us in our profession, I think in our little uh, email chain that, you know, I, I, I said as much as like, you know, this makes me think about our profession and where are we with that, with our, our journals, with our research, um, you know, with our funding um, and is health disparities and, and uh, that kind of research um, being funded? Is it being published? Is it something that we are putting at the forefront, you know, or not. Is it, it is, is it getting the same press that a tweet like this on JAMA just mm -hmm. did? And that's a question. I don't know. Is, is there more that's being, is there less, uh, more that could be done? Hey, Jim, you gotta start, you gotta stop pumping up the JAMA. Okay. You just gotta stop. You just gotta stop. All right. I was just shocked. Like <laughs> I didn't, I didn't get to say my, my first, you know, my piece, I, I literally read it three times. Because I was like, wow, like, it's like, you know, say it ain't so, Joe, like watching someone that you looked up to go, wow, this is you, you know, don't watch what uh, someone says, watch what they do. And they just went and did it. And I was like, I didn't think this is what you were. And, you know, I, they showed the colors, unfortunately. This is how I felt. Yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, go, Chris. Uh, oh, I was just going to shout out to you for that, uh, like level 10 thermonuclear dad joke that was awesome um yeah uh yeah he said pump up the jamma i knew oh. that you didn't you didn't you didn't catch it because you like gave like a serious response and it was like no no yeah. drag him drag him <laughs> i missed it Where, are you on radio weren't you on radio I was. i'm i'm focused i'm like this is serious you, you got me in like giving these to be serious mode because yeah, this is yeah. serious. Oh, it is. And I feel bad for missing the pump up the jamma yeah. You're right. Yeah, Chris, I, well, I think we should circle back to the being uncomfortable, being uncomfortable, right? Because I knew it. <laughs> I, was like, I know. But I still can understand what Steph is saying because myself included, um, you know, use, uh, you know, and from coming from communications, and I've talked about this with Lisa, which is like when you say like um, white privilege. Right. So look at the bell curve. A lot of the people who are white are like, I'm not privileged. Right. Like, I'm not privileged. And they immediately go like this. I'm not privileged, which is I, they go like this. I'm not listening to anything you say after because I just I disagree with that. But they don't understand it. So I, what I'm saying is like. Maybe use a different phrase, because I think if people went down the road a little further, they'd understand what you were talking about. Um. Because I was talking about you need this needs to be this need this is a structural issue, so we need to change structure. How do you do that? That's big. So I I think you can meet people where they're at, because um, if you're trying to have an intercultural exchange, then that's needed, right? You got to find that shared communication space, um, and those may be at different levels. So I do agree with that. But there comes a time in that conversation where there has to be a recognition of the literacy issue, right? So some of that for the health education community is we just don't understand the words, but because we are often arrogant, we feel like we can go into any conversation and talk about it because we're a doctor of medicine or a doctor of PT. And the truth is, is JAMA lost an, a really great opportunity because that would have been a fabulous facilitated conversation 
because those two gentlemen actually had differing opinions, but it was poorly done. And that's where I'm like, we have to come into this conversation about DEI and social justice with the same rigor and relevance that we would a musculoskeletal content, right? We would never allow for there to be some of these conversations going on about DEI without a content expert. But because we think it's something soft and something we all experience, we're not giving it the, the rigor that it really needs. Like these are identity research has been going on for years and research about social structures and, and about how we marginalize people. Um, so we have to bring some other voices into this conversation because I often feel like we are ill-equipped to have these. Um, and that's kind of what you saw happen with JAMA. The other issue that happened with JAMA is, is that they didn't value an outside opinion. Because I really think if they would have sent that podcast to another organization, someone else would have probably said to them, this is not a good idea. Well, or why didn't they have an internal check and balance? Like, why didn't they have someone maybe on the team? Did. Maybe they but, didn't. They thought it was okay. Good point. Yeah, Good point. but that's part of the structural isms, right? Is a big part of it is culture. And so we have said as a culture, this is kind of what we believe, right? And that's why it was able to go through the system. So people are all upset about the checks and balances at JAMA, but it's no different than when you drive past the projects or past a school that is under-resourced and your kids are at the school that's got 15 teachers for one topic. I'm like, these are the exact same things, y'all. So there are checks and balances that happen in our everyday life that we're ignoring and we're no different than JAMA. And I think that points out, I know, I believe it very strongly. This is not a belief. This is, this is, let, let, let's get on to like the actual um, uh, pressure points. Um, I said this earlier, uh, that's a negative and a positive case, okay? Messing with people's money is a way to make them pay attention, but it's not really a way to get people to do something and go along with it. There are sweeteners with this. This is the better way to practice, like Mark was pointing out, engaging with the community, really finding out how to build meaning within the people who are close to where you practice and using that to define your value proposition. Our values should be our value, right? So finding that proposition is what we need to do. So it doesn't need to be a negative case. If it is, it will fail. We have to have a positive case for implementing DEI in our everyday practice. And that positive case is we're leaving money on the table. There are people who have impairments and we do not see them because they are black, brown, gay, poor. Uh, they work day or nights instead of days. I mean, it's a whole wide gamut of ridiculous reasons. So we can we can mess with people's money, but we can also offer a sweetener as for uh, uh, creating a cognitive dissonance, that's only to make people start to think about what's going on. The thinking is the process. The actions come from that, right? So if you get somebody open and you're like, listen, I'm gonna put you in a place where you recognize there's a problem and then you can do what you want. And most people are gonna say right away, I don't wanna talk about that, you're wrong. But if you're consistent and you're transparent, here's why I'm saying these things and I will be here. And when you pivot, now I'll still be here and I'll welcome you. That's one thing. But there's a lot of people in our profession who are afraid to yeah. do what they think they they, they want to do because they'll lose their job. They've got kids getting ready to go to college and they need to get the top off on that college fund. 
Um, nowadays, it's I just got my first job. I just got my second job, and there's no other jobs around right now. So you know, visceral fear. We need to be able to address people's fear and say, listen, this is a group we are leading, showing that you can practice in this way, act in this way. There are repercussions, but we can survive it. And also, by the way, we're the cool people. <laughs> we hang out together. We support each other. And on the other side, it's a everybody's an N of one. Okay, and being isolated in your own cognitive dissonance in your own suffering is a bad place to be. We're on this side all partying together. So there's a place where we can positively assert this agenda, not have it be scary once they get onto our side, into the fold, but definitely having them say, you know, I'm afraid of staying over here by myself. That's okay. We can have that place where they can run to. I think I think that's a vision uh, that we can uh, implement. I think what's really beautiful about how Chris and Rupal and Lisa and Steph, how everybody communicates about this is, is on the outward side, a place of calm, right? And I think that what Steph has alluded to is sometimes people are triggered when it comes to, they get offended or they, or they, or they're fearful or they're, they, or they feel like they they're blamed or they self shame or they've been shamed. So they, they can't engage. They, 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 they leave their head, right? They go into this fear-based space. So, I think what the way that Chris and Lisa, I've communicated with you a bunch on these topics is like just your ability, even though you may be wanting to beat me with beat people with the stick inside the demeanor that's external, the poise that's external, the de-escalation from an emotional standpoint while using really strong evidence, just like we like Lisa, your point is so beautiful. Like let's, this is, this is like an orthopedic exam. We don't argue about, that right it's just there there's enough evidence there's a million times more evidence is needed that this is just fact let's let's take the emotion out of it let's take the blame out of it and let's just see the facts for what they are and move from there right and i think that's how you engage chris and like your point you use factual evidence-based language and then you're not attacking you're not like lunging out you're not being hateful you're not being disrespectful you're just literally giving the information in a, in a really solid way and i think that's a beautiful thing that because i get lit up i get really pissed <laughs> what has the last 12 months taught us right um you know people who don't want to be convin convinced about a pandemic throwing statistics at them sometimes sometimes works and sometimes does not so this is where i come from a communications guy is like okay figure out what what frequency intensity time and type to use the fit model what are you comfortable listening to because if you're a stats person great stats work and if you're not then they're just going to go like this they're going like this and they're going like this and they're just going to agree or disagree i mean you know i was watching a video today about uh, a research experiment on flat earth we're we're talking about flat earth right now guys like people, mm -hmm. the people are still talking about this um and sometimes it you know the communication methods is actually where the disconnect can be, unfortunately. Good for me, because I'm in communications. But like sometimes, gosh, that's where we fail. No, I, I totally agree. Um, because sometimes we come into these conversations to prove, right? right. I have something your to goal. prove. Your goal. So, I, so I think we all have to come into the conversation knowing that we are worthy, we are enough, we are capable, and we are committed to the conversation. If we can just agree to that, and, and then also, you know, come up with a safe word that says, hey, 
I'm getting to my stretch point. I need a moment to reset myself. But it doesn't mean we have to run from the conversations right. and that we have to embrace a certain amount of tension because that's where the growth happens. Right. That's Wolf's law. You have to have a little tension. That's OK. That's part of life. Um, I was talking about the prisoner's dilemma. And so it's a game theory that was um, the psychologist, I think, was flood. There was another person. And so it talks about the fact that we are actually incentivized to normally take care of just ourselves and to not cooperate with other people and how that they've seen this in regards to like um, it's called the prison theory, because if you had two criminals that were in two different cells and you and you told them both that if they ratted the other person out, that they would get a lesser sentence or be set free, that the system actually is set up for each other to rat each other out. Right. And it's the same thing in normal life that there are so many social experience experiments where it's set up for us to say, I'm just going to think about me. But really, both of us would have a better life if we just said, OK, we're going to commit to each other and what we are doing together, right or wrong, and then just have our shortened sentence. Right. Because no one gives somebody the evidence to traumatize another person. And so it's this interesting concept called the prison's dilemma, but how it works is you got to isolate people so that they feel like they're alone. And so then there's nothing they can do but survive. And those people have to have really have had really poor communication during the crime or the activity. And that's how we live in society. We live in these silos. We function in these very separated spaces, both educationally and housing. And, and we have to commit to each other that we're going to at least go into conversations with each other, even if we're not going to live near each other, even if we're not going to educate our children near each other. Because without that, without the communications and the, the interactions, we're not going to make progress on this, y'all. And PTs are just as segregated in the community as any other group. Any good economist will tell you that money is a means of communication. Price is information. So we're all capitalists here until we're not. <laughs> and definitely our field is highly entrepreneurial and high, highly capitalistic. So, yep, I, I'll jump back out after jumping in. All right. Chris, you, hit, you hit it on the head because racism is nothing more than just colored capitalism. That's all it is. And it's a luxury. It's it's uh, it, it's taking some of the efficiency out of our system and using it for something that feels momentarily good to some people. But um, you know, efficiencies matter. Let, let let's just apply the knowledge that we already have, the the methods and the the tactics, the uh, the skills that we already have to create efficiencies. I love um, where uh, you know we're talking about like peer review at JAMA which I don't know if any of y'all have ever submitted anything to JAMA, but it is not inconsequential. It is very daunting. Um, so to see that level of scrutiny on one side and then an absolute just open door to garbage on the other side, it's like, okay, like these people know how to be to scrutinize something to the nth degree. We need to incentivize that lens being applied over here. And, you know, we have we have the techniques and the methods to do it using the same things that we apply in other in other areas uh, we as pts yeah friend of the show sky donovan uh chiming in if institutions aren't diverse no real checks and balances too much group think every small and large corporation needs hiring practice to promote diversity 
it helps the corporation uh, and the consumer. And then, of, of course, Sky chiming in because she's uh, an anatomist, uh, loves the Wolf's Law reference as well. <laughs> you know, and I, I would have to say that one thing that as a profession in physical therapy that I feel like we could do a better job of is advocacy and advocacy at the highest level. Because when we think about power and structure and these imbalances, when we talk about systemic racism, it starts at that highest level, you know? And so I think just uh, last week or the week before the house passed the George Floyd, um, whatever the act is called, I think, uh, uh, policing act. And so the heart of that is reforming, you know, uh, systems that have been, contributed to bias, racial bias and systemic racism, right? And so, you know, changing things like that is eventually going to help change some of those systemic inequities that, you know, we see in terms of incarceration and police brutality that impacts the health of that person that is in front of us, you know? And so I think, you know, ad, being an advocate for, you know, those other determinants uh, of health that sometimes we think not our lane, but that is our lane. If our, you know, if our vision is to transform society, then we need to kind of look at what is upstream that's causing you know, um, these health disparities and outcomes. And then what can I as an individual, what can we as a profession, what can we as an association do to dismantle some of that by getting in front of those people with power and letting them know that, hey, this particular constituent cares and this is what we want to see in terms of change. Yeah, well, that's awesome. I, you know, I'm a huge advocacy fan too, do a ton of it, right? Like, I mean, all on all levels, state, local, national, um, but I'm going to challenge and push back a little bit and really um, kind of focus on the lack of leadership from the APTA when it comes to larger issues that have been, passed, uh, you know, in the front, the forefront of, of us as healthcare providers. Um, like they, they haven't said anything about, they haven't released anything or they, they really, the APTA, I'll be very specific, has very limited that. Um, voice and taking a stance in being anti-racist right uh, and so i think that needs to be called out like even though we need to advocate for our profession like i i don't think our professional organization is standing up for our people in internally and externally our people and being the profession or the public at large yeah so, I mean, I, I, that needs to change. I agree, Mark. I think you're right. And I think that's, uh, that's one of the things. I think we as a profession, as individuals in the profession, we need to do more in that yeah. space. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why, like I said, as some of us from Texas are working on a motion related to systemic racism um, so that, you know, like, can, can we, should we, you know, do more? Uh, because, I, I mean, Personally, I think we should. All of us here think we should, but can we convince others? I love motions. <laughs> I love tweets too. I mean, a tweet is very fast. Like to oh. make a statement, right. we saw how fast. You know, what do they say? You know, a lie, uh, a lie can go around the world faster than the truth can uh, uh, before it gets out of bed. A you know, great response and planting your flag and saying this is wrong. Right. I think. Yeah. I think as an organization, we need to look for some, some of that that needs to shift in our org, right? We need representation in a way that um, not only reflects 
the information that's factual, right? Because like you can take arguments here like, oh, it's too personal or it's too ambiguous. Like that's bullshit. Like the data is there that this is not okay. We are a data-driven profession. We need to accentuate that, that yeah, Oscar just posted that there's a large number of people that <laughs> believe it's not in our lane. That is a bullshit response, and it's so, not our responsibility oh, for them to be uncomfortable. Chris, you can go. Well, well, well Mark, come on now. Ease up, man. <laughs> Calling somebody it makes me angry. Sometimes if somebody says something, immediately say, well, that's bullshit, is a tactic. I will agree. It's one I've employed several times. <laughs> Sorry. However, uh, I would argue that, that the APTA in this space needs to be doing teachings. This is not a new thing, right? What is a teach-in? Uh, a a, a teach-in, like Rubel was pointing out, uh, the civil rights movement. The teach-in oh, is the okay. mechanism that in the civil rights movement was used to identify an issue, and they were very strategic about identifying the issue. Okay, here are the weak points where we can press. Let's teach people to be upset about this, okay? They're generally upset. They're, oh, I'm unsatisfied, I feel this. I, I don't like what's going on, but it's an a, unfocused kind of feeling. To, center, to focus, to center that on an agenda, on an initiative, and then to teach them how to believe in it, how to act, how to, you know, when you're having conversations, how to push back, when, to, when you can say, hey, you know, I'm not comfortable now, I'm pulling all the way back, you do your thing, right? What is, where is that space? How is it defined? All of that was covered in teachings. And we're talking the kids in the streets getting hit with fire hoses, uh, the bo bus boycotts that brought down, um, you know, uh, uh, tons of places, Birmingham, uh, you know, uh, Memphis. Uh, we're talking strikes in the streets. All of that stuff started with people getting together and just talking about issues, getting consensus in small groups, larger groups, and then implementing actions that had now organically flowed from the people up through this narrowing focus into action that everybody had participated in building towards. So, you know, when it came time to have people going out and having repercussions on them, which they did, and if anybody is moving in this space and actually starts to have effect, we should expect to have pushback. That is something that is going to happen if we're effective. Then to say, what's next? Once you get punched in the face, what's next? That's how you fight. People yeah. who know how to fight know how to take a punch. It's not knowing how to throw a punch, it's knowing how to take a punch. Yeah. What happens next? Building that is not something that's brand new. It's just applying skills we already have. And in a lot of these spaces that, that creativity and that linking is what gets broken down like lisa was saying because people are isolated and they aren't thinking in this linking creative kind of way they're in this protectionist you know scarcity mindset kind of space which you're not feeling creative creative when you're thinking about well i gotta pay my mortgage right i'm not trying to like come up with creative ideas i'm like if i got my mortgage paid i'm going to stay here we need to make that space where people can start to engage that creativity in those links. And this has already been done before. Teachings is the way is, is the way that it was done before. Um, and I think the APTA should be leading this. This is an open, wide open space to jump in with content. Yeah. Opportunity. So, Chris, Absolutely. I definitely agree that there's an opportunity there. I think, though, the assumption is, is that that is what the APTA wants to do. And I am not 100% sold on that um, because I, I, I do see activity. Um, but it is not organized. Um, it is not centralized. Um, I could not tell you where that activity is taking us to. I know we're trying to raise a whole bunch of money, but I'm not sure for what. Um, and I have said this in public spaces. I will say it again. I am not a fan of Feed Africa funds. 
um, where we're raising money and it really is about saviorism and people are like, look at me, I gave money. I do not care how good you feel. I want to know how are we changing the system and the structure because that is what is sustainable. Anything other than that, you're wasting time and resources. Um, and if you do not value it, then just be honest so that then people can make a decision. I'm like, we talk about individuals being their authentic selves. I think organizations need to be authentic. Um, and there's a lot of organizations right now talking about we support DEI. Okay, so what are you doing? Other than just handing out money, because we've done that for years and that has not changed things. What are we really truthfully gonna do? So I will tell you some things I'd like to see the APTA do. First of all, this DEI position, we need to remove the PT fund from that position. Those need to be two separate positions because evidently learning from JAMA, DEI, social justice is a big deal and it needs to be a full-time job and an interest of someone within the APTA staff. So you can't be managing social justice and also providing a ton of oversight to the PT fund. Those two things need to separate out. The other thing that needs to happen is, is the APTA needs to do its own organizational assessment, right? From the top to the bottom, from hiring to the practices, to the House of Delegates. We have yet to have a really good demographic report put out on who's in the House of Delegates. We need to have a conversation about that, right? So as we talk about other organizations, I'm like, we really gotta start with ourselves. But those would be my two low-hanging fruit. Change that DEI position, come up with a true strategic plan for diversity and stop telling people they need to wait. I've been a PT since 1996 and my first research project was related to diversity, equity and inclusion. And truthfully, y'all, the, the data is worse now than it was before. And Paula Johnson spit, it, spit out a piece of data last week that I'm still like, dear baby Jesus, where she talked about 70% of the attrition rate for DPT programs are black students. Can we talk about that in an open space? Because you can't tell me that, oh, it's just an individual thing when 70% of the children that are being removed from PT programs are black. And newsflash, if you don't think a black person's issue is your issue because the takeoff is someone's going to say, well, but y'all only represent 3% three, three of the profession of the APTA membership, about 3,000 people. Everyone is African. You may or may not realize that yet, but that's just a genetic fact. So we all African. It's just a matter of if you want to say you're African or not. And then you can add extra stuff to it. That's going to be your intersections. So get over this black people issues ain't my issues. We all African. So we all connected. So we just need to figure this thing out. That's my newsflash. If you hadn't got that memo from Mother Lucy. <laughs> this entire episode was just a warm up for Lisa right there to, <laughs> to tee off. That, that was the whole thing. Let's make the room warm enough to let Lisa tee off. Yeah, so people, so people chiming in. Torrin saying he loves that. Kim uh, saying thanks. Also saying wow. You know, is the APTA 
APTA doing something, uh, you know, just appointed new DEI committee chair working to change structure as we speak. But again, we'll chime in and say we are the APTA. If we don't like this, we need to vote with our dollars and our attention, our delegates. There, there are many ways that we can that we can chime in positively or negatively. No marginal solutions. No nibbling at the edges on this one, period. No. That's it. If we don't hit it center cut, then there's no point in even working within the APTA. And I said that. Then it's exactly what Lisa just said, which is this this yeah. is this is about you wanting to feel nice and not actually getting anything done. Yeah. And, um, and and we've done that. We we know that path. I mean, that was the thing that shocked me. Like where we are right now, we are so close to the last year's worth of um everything that happened to us, us as everybody, right? And the fact that this happened now, I'm like, I, I don't know, just let down. Like, wow. Like, yeah. you know, again, I mean, I guess I now I'm like, you know, shocked but not surprised or, or not, you know, I'm neither. I'm neither shocked nor surprised. This was a two. This was a two. This should have been a 10. Like, but like where we are now, we're like, well, it's a two. Well, I guess JAMA just does this stuff. That's not okay. Like, we need to plant a flag and say this is not okay. Uh, before we do parting shots, is there anything we didn't get into that we should? I want to make sure that there's... Lisa's breathing. Me. I like. I, I would say the only thing we need to get into is just a reminder to people that depending upon your identities and, and how many marginalized identities you have, that kind of is a really great dose dependent response to this, right? Because I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked. Um, because I'm black, I'm female, I come from an impoverished background. So I'm used to white males from higher incomes doing really crazy stuff, right? And and I think that's part of it is is realizing that for some of us, we're not shocked by this. We might be re-traumatized by it. Um, and we're trying to create space for some of you who are like, just, oh my God, this is happening. Um, and that's where we're showing grace and generosity. But there's only so much of that we can keep doing because this is what's killing us, right? Is me trying to hold this in and try to create space for you when really what I want to say is, is why are you okay with killing my family? Like the whole COVID thing, why are you okay with me losing three relatives because you don't want to put a mask on? But I, I have to, out of a spirit of generosity, create space for you to get to the place that you want to get to. And I think that's why Carnell West said it beautifully. He said when someone, he specifically said a black person, I'm going to paraphrase and say when someone comes into a room that has been marginalized, you almost need to give a standing ovation because he said that person is not asking for revenge. They are merely asking for respect, right? So he was just like, honor that experience and just make some decisions that remind you we are connected. Love that. All right, you guys ready for parting shots? We'll take that as a yes. Your silence is agreement. I might have just gave my parting shot. I think I just did. Uh, thanks to our friends at the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy, orthopt.org. Uh, if you're looking to improve your competency, your confidence as an orthopedic PT, they're the Academy of Orthopedic PT. Find them online at orthopt.org. 
I'm going to go first because I'm going to let you guys drop the mic, but I think your silence is agreement. That's my parting shot. Your silence is agreement. If you don't say something, then you are agreeing with what was just said. Uh, let's go around the horn. We're going to start with Mark because no one's going to want to follow Lisa, so I'm not going to make anybody follow Lisa. So Lisa's going to go last. So we go Mark, Chris, Rupal, and Steph, and then Lisa. Uh, Mark, you're up first. Oh, Lisa, I, what you just communicated was extremely profound to me, and it resonated on my ears that I, I haven't heard is that even in the anger that I have, um, I have to honor the normalcy for which marginalized people live. And I, I think hearing you communicate that was really um, quite poignant and powerful. So thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that parting shot. Uh, let's go to Chris. Chris, you're up next. Parting shot. Um, you know, just another thank you. Shout out to the PT Pinecast. This isn't being talked about in other places. The 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 AMA and JAMA clearly have uh, a PR response, uh, which is the appropriate one, which is to um, try to make this go away. Right. So um, good for good for you all. Good for us for keeping this going. Um, the the last thing I have to say is, if you want to do the right thing, if this makes you want to do the right thing, but you don't feel like you have the space, hit me up. Let's talk. Love that. Love that. Uh, Rupal, parting shot. Wow. I mean, it's hard to follow these guys. So, you know, <laughs> I think that we've talked a lot about kind of just change and what we can do, you know, systemically, what we can do individually. And um, I guess my parting shot would be uh, one of my, you know, um, favorite people on the planet who is no longer with us, which is Mahatma Gandhi. And I think one of the things that uh, he has said is that our greatest ability as humans is not to change the world, but to change ourselves. And I know that um, that's where we need to start is look within and introspect, reflect, uh, learn more, listen more um, to uh, people's stories. And then, um, you know, that that's where we need to go. Love that. All right, Steph, parting shot. What do you got for us? Oof. Uh, I think in the simplest terms, like, let's do this. Let's get it done. Let's work together. Let's communicate. And uh, let's make this a better place for the generations to come. All right. All right, Lisa, parting shot. No pressure, but you're the, you're the anchor here. No pressure. Um, so I actually received a tweet from one of my learning party partners. So I'm going to shout out Dr. Mike, um, Micah Mee. Mika Mitchell, sorry, I just got tongue-tied. She knows I love her. Um, but the quote she just sent me said, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound with minds, then let's work together. And it comes from an um, Elder Watson um, from Australia, because we are already connected biologically. Once we figure out that we are connected socially, and that we are our brothers, our sisters, our other humans keepers, then we can fix this thing. Yeah. Well said. Uh, you know, we just talked for an hour and, and, and a half close to it. Um, not This isn't not even the full first step, right? We need to have these conversations. It'd be ongoing. And if they're not, then this is, this is lip service. And it, it can't be if we actually want to see change in something as biggest JAMA or even bigger than that, which is society, right? I mean, I think this was a, a great tip of the iceberg moment um, a week ago, which for me, you know, 
shocked me, but or you know, it shocked and surprised me. But I think a lot of you, it didn't, it didn't do either. And that's what Lisa was just talking about. It should do both of us because you know what ye does to the least of us, you do, you do to me. We need to act like that. You got to act as if that we're tied, right? Yeah, I just went there. Um, then I don't, I don't know what the follow up is. Maybe we need to have another conversation in six months and go. Then what have, what have we done? Because if we don't measure it, it doesn't get done. So. You guys let me know whenever you guys want to come back because I like you and you're all fun and smart and we can have a drink. So let's do that. Chris? I would love to see some people from the DEI uh, structure within the APTA getting on here and responding to some of these ideas. Okay. Yep. But let's get them on board. Yep. I like that. I think we should revisit sooner than later. This is, needs to be top of mind. Okay. I'm here. <laughs> I broadcast from my living room. I now live and work in this room. So this is where you will find me close. But uh, in all seriousness, thank you guys for your time um, and energy because I watch people like Lisa, like Mark, like Chris, like everybody on the screen, like RuPaul, like Steph, like th this, like doing this is you know is just showing up and I'm using air quotes for the podcast audience. This is energy. Like it takes energy to, you know, this is, we're, we're not, we're, we're, we're conversing, but this is fighting, right? Like this takes something out of you. When we, when we hit stop on this broadcast, like we're all going to go, ah, okay, we got that. It does take energy. So don't discount the fact that these people are just sitting here because this does take energy to speak and to respond to things. And, you know, it, it takes energy to do these things. So don't discount that. So I do want to thank you guys for your time and energy. I do want to add that. So thank you for you guys. Thank you, Jimmy. Love the PT Pinecast? Yes. Yes. Support the show by telling a friend or by leaving a review on iTunes or Google Play. All right, show today brought to you by the Brooks Institute of Higher Learning, an innovator in providing advanced post-professional education. Brooks IHL offering continuing education courses in numerous specialty areas, six PT residency programs, an OMPT fellowship, as well as challenging but rewarding internships. The IHL specializes in the translation of information from evidence to patient management. Learn what they can do for you to support your professional development at brooksihl.org. Our home on the internet. ptpinecast.com Created by Build PT. Build PT provides marketing services specifically for private practice PTs. From website development and hosting. To providing content marketing solutions for PT clinics across the country. See what Build PT can do for you today at buildpt.com. The PT Pinecast is a product of PT Pinecast LLC. It's poured fresh by me, physical therapist, Jimmy McKay. Ingredients are sourced by our chief connections officer, Sky Donovan from Marymount University. And it's brewed fresh by producer and physical therapist, Juliet Dassinger. And by producer and creator, second year PT student, Bridget Nolan from Sacred Heart University. PT Pinecast is a podcast that saves physical therapists from missing out on amazing insight, remarkable ideas, and motivational stories. Make sure to follow us online at PT Pinecast and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I absolutely love you, love you, love you. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. And if you found value in the show, all we ask is that you tell a friend. This has been another pour from the PT Pinecast. The PT Pinecast is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present. More on the show at ptpinecast.com.